Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Well, have you ever gone through a time in your life when things just didn't seem to make sense? And maybe you're saying to yourself, a time in my life? How about my whole life hasn't made sense? I mean, uh, what's this about anyway? Uh, but maybe you're going through a specific circumstance and you're saying, yeah, I'm going through one of those times right now. That just doesn't make sense. I mean, I, I've done my best to be a good partner, but my spouse is bent on leaving me. It just doesn't make sense. Or I've been the best parent I know how to be, but my child is bent on making really bad choices and I'm afraid may end up dead or in jail. It, it just doesn't make sense. Or I've always tried to take good care of myself and I'm still going through a health crisis and I don't understand why God is letting this happen. There's so much I still want to do, so many things uh, that I, I want to do for him and, and yet I, I'm dealing with all this health stuff. It just doesn't make sense. Or I've tried many times to quit but alcohol and, and drugs have such a strong hold on me. I don't know how to get free. It just doesn't make sense. Or I've worked as hard as anyone at my place of employment, but I'm the one that is going to be laid off soon. It just doesn't make sense. Or maybe you say, I'm the one who's always trying to keep peace in the family, and now everybody's mad at me and nobody's talking to each other. It just doesn't make sense. And worse yet is when you've prayed and you ask God to intervene, and nothing seems to have happened, and you're wondering, where is God in all this? It just doesn't make sense. What do you do when it seems like things in your life just don't make sense? And worse yet is when you go on Facebook and all your friends are living it up and their kids are perfect and their houses are beautiful and they're always dressed up and going out on romantic dates with their spouses and it seems like they're always on vacation. How can they do that? You think, why can't I have their life? Uh, and, and they never seem to have the problems I have. Why is it that my life never makes sense? I wonder if the people of Egypt must have looked at Joseph like jealous Facebook friends when here in the end of Genesis chapter 41, he has this rise to power. He becomes this overnight success. He's wealthy, he's powerful, he has it all, and everybody must be looking at him like, I want his life. This just doesn't make sense. How come he's got all that and, and I've got all these problems? Well, you know, Joseph bursts on the scene, seemingly an overnight success, at the end of Genesis chapter 40, 
He becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt at the age of 30, as we're going to see in just a few moments. But we know from previous weeks of our study that Joseph's rise to power was 13 years in the making. Yeah, he was an overnight success, but 13 years is a long night, you know. Up until this time, nothing in his life had made much sense. Going all the way back to the age of 17, when his jealous brothers uh, thought they would kill him and then decided to sell him into slavery instead, and Potiphar bought him, and, and Joseph you know, does well under Potiphar. He distinguishes himself as a servant and he rises through the ranks to the point where Potiphar puts him in charge of everything that he owns. And, and yet he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife for coming on to her supposedly when he didn't do it. And, and he's thrown into prison unjustly where again, he proves so trustworthy that the, prison of the, prison, the captain of the prison guard says, uh, here, you be in charge of what goes on here. And he puts Joseph in charge of everything in the prison. Well, two VIP prisoners are put under Joseph's care there in the prison. And they have dreams, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. They don't know what the dreams mean. They're disturbed by these dreams. And Joseph interprets the dreams for them. And he tells the one, the cupbearer of the king, the Pharaoh, that when you are restored to power, I want you to remember me to Pharaoh and get me out of this place. I don't belong here. Well, the cupbearer of the king is restored to his position, but he forgets Joseph, and Joseph languishes in jail for two more years, as we saw last week. And there in the early verses of Genesis 41, um, we saw how Pharaoh himself had a couple of dreams. Disturbing dreams. He didn't know how to interpret. Nobody else knew how to interpret them. And then the cupbearer finally remembers Joseph and, and tells Pharaoh about this Hebrew man who interpreted his dreams while he was in prison. And they clean Joseph up and they bring him before Pharaoh. And, and Pharaoh hears from Joseph not only the interpretation of his dreams, but a strategic plan for saving the nation of Egypt from famine. There's coming seven years of plenty, bumper crops of grain, followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph says, Pharaoh, you better find somebody who can oversee the collection of grain during those seven good years. And then after that is done, he'll, he'll redistribute that grain throughout Egypt to save the nation from famine. And Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph that he decides to look no further. And that's where we pick up the story, right where we left off Last week in Genesis 41, beginning at verse 38, where it says, And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this? And who is the Spirit of God? Where else are we going to find somebody this wise? Pharaoh has only just met Joseph. He can already tell that the Spirit of God is on this young Hebrew man. Now, at various points throughout the Joseph story, it has been noted that the hand of the Lord was upon Joseph, and the Lord was blessing Joseph's work. Potiphar saw it, the captain of the guard saw it, and now Pharaoh can see it. Well, who better to put in charge of the famine relief plan than the one to whom God has revealed it? Then Joseph, and then Pharaoh said to Joseph, verse 39, since God has shown you all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph and so persuaded of the importance of the work that he will do that he elevates Joseph to the second most powerful position in all the empire. But he also gives Joseph all the 
the trappings of that office, all the symbols of authority necessary to show everybody that, that he's acting on Pharaoh's behalf. And verse 42 says, then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Having Pharaoh's signet ring is a big deal because it's basically saying that you have Pharaoh's own authority. That whatever documents you sign, when you hit it with that signet ring, it's as if Pharaoh himself signed on the bottom line. Whether it's a contract or an edict or some correspondence, basically Joseph spoke for Pharaoh. And he needed to look the part as well. So Pharaoh dresses him, it says, in fine Egyptian linen, you know, probably at least 800 thread count. And, and gives him gold chains to wear, fitting for someone of his exalted rank. And since his job would require him to travel all about the kingdom, overseeing the collection of grain for the next seven years, he gives him royal transportation and makes everybody bow down when he passes by. It says in verse 43, and he made him ride in his second chariot. This is like being given Air Force Two to fly around in, right? And they call out before him, bow the knee. And thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Like Potiphar, who put Joseph in charge of everything he owned. Like the captain of the guard, who put Joseph in charge of the whole prison. Pharaoh decides to put Joseph in charge of the entire kingdom. And maybe to make his rapid ascendancy more palatable to Egyptians who didn't particularly care for Hebrews, Pharaoh gives him an Egyptian name and a, and a wife from one of Egypt's most prominent families. Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphanath Paneah. Now this could mean one of a couple of different things. Scholars kind of bicker about this a bit. Some say that the name means uh, God has spoken and he lives. Well, that would be appropriate because God has spoken through Joseph and proven that he is the true God. So God has spoken and he lives. Others say, no, it means he who knows things, which would also be appropriate. People look at Joseph and say, wow, this guy really knows stuff. You know? Either way, it's an appropriate name, Zaphonath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So he marries into one of the most prestigious families of Egypt, so Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. I mean, can you imagine what a meteoric rise this is? In a matter of hours, Joseph goes from prison to the halls of power. He goes from the pit to the pinnacle. He goes from 13 years a slave and a prisoner to having a 14-year contract to be Pharaoh's chief operating officer. He goes from rags to riches. He goes from being a nobody in a foreign land to being a nobleman in one of the world's greatest empires. And he was 30 years old when all this happens. Verse 46 says, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Joseph being Joseph isn't content to have achieved fame and power and wealth. He gets right to work. He's gonna to prove to Pharaoh that he's worthy of Pharaoh's trust. And during the seven 
plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. He gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he put the food in cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. They don't even know how to measure all this grain that Joseph's collecting. And it's because Joseph was faithful to do what God had showed him to do during the seven bumper crop years that Joseph and all of Egypt are prepared for the seven years of famine that are to follow. It says in verse 53, the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end and the seven years of famine began to come as Joseph had said. This, by the way, is not the only time something like this had happened in Egypt. Normally the, the Nile River was very dependable. Uh, the, the rains would come up north or up in, in the hills, rather, of Ethiopia and Sudan, and the snow would melt and the rains would come and all that water would come down the Nile and the Nile would overflow its banks. It happens almost every year. And when the Nile overflows its banks, it deposits this fine red silt in the floodplain and, and then they plant the crops and, and that silt enriches the, the soil and the crops do well. But occasionally they have what's called low Nile when the Nile doesn't overflow its banks and, and then the crops aren't going to fare so well. And if low Nile comes several years in a row, it can cause years of misery as Egyptian records sometimes describe. In fact, there was one time about 800 years before the time of Joseph that they had seven years in a row of low Nile. <laughs> Sound familiar? So this is not the first time Egypt has experienced seven years of famine. And in that previous year, uh, years of famine, those seven years when the Nile was low, the records of Egypt talk about how grain was scant, fruits were dried up, most everything edible was in short supply, people robbed each other, babies wailed in hunger, men, old men suffered, temples were shut up, had hiding, uh, holding rather, nothing but air, everything was empty, the cupboards were bare. And that's what might have happened in Joseph's day too, except for the fact that God had given Pharaoh two dreams and he gave Joseph the interpretation of the dreams as well as a plan to keep the nation fed while the Nile went low for seven years in a row. And so in the days of this Pharaoh, the nation fared much better than it might have. It says there was famine in all lands, but in all the lands of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, keep that in mind, because the fact that the famine hit not just Egypt, but all the surrounding nations as well is going to factor in heavily in the chapters that immediately follow. But for now, I simply want to celebrate how Joseph became this overnight success. Except that as in most overnight success stories, we know that it was a long time in coming. And there were many times along the way when Joseph must have been saying to himself, this doesn't make sense. Why are you letting this happen to me, God? 
But it's clear that through all of this, Joseph's rise to power was the result of God's work in his life. For 13 years, Joseph had humbled himself under the mighty hand of God, had remained faithful to do whatever God gave him to do in whatever circumstance he found himself, and God lifted him up at the exact right time. Not just the exact right time for Joseph, but the exact right time for Egypt, for the exact right time for the region, and most especially the exact right time for Joseph's own family back in Canaan, as we'll see in weeks to come. And, and this wasn't lost on Joseph. So I want us to look today at how Joseph saw that, that overnight success, how Joseph viewed what God had done. And, and we look now at verses 50 through 52. These are going to be the focus of our attention for the rest of our time together, where it says, before the year of famine came. So we're talking after the first seven years, about the first seven years are times of famine, or times of plenty. So that when the time of famine came, this had already taken place. Two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. I want us to concentrate on, on how Joseph names his sons because it's very instructive to us about how Joseph viewed his life and what had happened to him. So the, the naming of the children shows us that he did not take the, the naming or, or didn't take credit for what had happened in his life, but rather as he had done all along, Joseph talked only about what God could do and what God had done. And this is important because all too often, you know, when God gives us success, what do we do? Well, we forget what part God had in it and we take credit for ourselves. But not Joseph. Joseph is consistently throughout his life focusing on what God has done. And so Manasseh is a, Hebrew name, and it sounds like the Hebrew phrase that means making to forget. Making to forget. He names him Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the name of the second, he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The, the, the word Ephraim in Hebrew uh, sounds like the, the phrase that says, uh, that means making fruitful. He has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God has done all this. God has done it all. And I want us to focus on these two verses for the remainder of our time together as, as we try on an idea for size that might help us for those times when we're trying to make sense out of life. And the idea I want you to try on for size is this one. When you let God write your life story, he makes sense of every chapter. When you let God write your life story, he makes sense of every chapter. Now, the problem is that some of us don't let God write the story of our lives, right? We keep the pen in our hand, and we insist on writing. We insist on having our way. We insist on being the captain of our destiny, the master of our fate, and we're determined to write that story somehow or other. We're going to get to, and they lived happily ever after, if it kills us, right? But if you let God write your life story, when you surrender the pen to God and you say, Lord, you take over, you write the story of my life, 
he makes sense of even the parts of the story that don't make sense to you. Even the parts of the story that are most troublesome and baffling to you. When you say, here you go, God, I'm yours, you take over, he works in everything for good. When God is done writing the story of your life, you'll see that no part was wasted. It all makes sense. Now, I want you to think about this idea in two ways, two ways that are suggested to us by the names of, of Joseph's sons. Remember, the first was named Manasseh, making to forget. One of the ways that God makes sense of our life story is when old wounds fade, old wounds fade when you see how strategically God has used them. Old wounds fade when you see how strategically God has used them. So he names this firstborn child Manasseh, which sounds like making to forget, for he has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. There's something good about forgetting. Now those of us who are getting older lament the fact that we forget too much. There's too, too many things we forget. But have you ever considered that forgetting things can be a good thing? Forgetting things can be a blessing. Imagine if you could remember everything that ever happened to you. There are people who are cursed with that condition. It's called hyperthymesia. It's an actual medical condition where people have such crazy good memories that they can't forget anything. In fact, there was a story done on National Public Radio some time ago interviewing some of these folks. And they interviewed one woman in particular who was 55 years old. And by the way, this is such a rare condition. There are like maybe only 50 or 55 people in the whole country who have it. But this one woman at the age 55 was interviewed and she described how she remembers every detail of a mundane activity like driving to Target for groceries that occurred 10 years before. Every detail of that trip, she could tell you. Uh, she remembers, for instance, uh, what she wore and what she ate every day for the last decade. She could tell you if the fan in her bedroom was on a year ago on that same date. Sometimes this extraordinary ability is an advantage, but oftentimes, many other times, it's a curse. One interviewee in this NPR report said that he remembers all the wrongs that were ever done against him and all the wrongs he'd ever committed. And that became the scenario for an episode of the television show House, where there was a middle-aged character, a patient with hyperthymesia, who remembered everything she ever said or did since the onset of puberty. She remembered the wrongs people had done to her, and those memories haunted and harassed her. The episode demonstrates the same thing the NPR story states, and that is that we need to forget as much as we need to remember. Well, Joseph reports that God had helped him forget a lot of the bad things that had happened to him. The betrayal by his own brothers, how they first wanted to kill him, and then they decided to sell him into slavery. The, the false accusation of Potiphar's wife that led to his unjust imprisonment the forgetfulness of the king's cupbearer that made him languish in jail for two more years, 13 years of exile in a foreign country as a slave and a prisoner, 13 years, the best years of his life, stolen from him. 
And like someone with hyperthymesia, Joseph could have fixated on every wrong that had been done to him. But he says, God has helped me forget. Not that he didn't remember all those things anymore. Verse 51 makes it clear he remained cognizant of what his brothers had done. He remembered his parents back in Canaan. But he says, God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. It's as if God has taken the pain of all that away. God has, has helped me forget. He, I don't hang on to the, the pain of it anymore. I don't dwell on what I lost, what was taken from me. As he rides about Egypt in Air Force Two, doing his work of saving Egypt from starvation, all of that seems of little consequence now. In fact, with a little reflection, he couldn't help but see that God didn't waste any of his hurts. Not only was his enslavement and imprisonment the pathway to power that God used, but the lessons he learned overseeing Potiphar's house and and managing the prison were part of God's preparation for the biggest management task of his life. Nothing about those 13 years were pleasant. But Joseph wouldn't trade them for anything now. When you let God write your life story, he makes sense of every chapter. Old wounds fade when you see how strategically God has used them. I think someone here needs to hear this today. It's not doing you any good if like a hyperthymesiac you're hanging on to, continually reliving grievances of the past. You know, those wounds still might be a little too fresh, but eventually you need to get to the point where you can say, I can see now how God used that in my life to humble me, to bring me to himself, to prepare me for something better, to teach me sympathy for others who suffer. If it's true that God works in all things for good, and we know it's true because God's word says it so, then as a follower of Jesus, you need to expect that even in the worst things that come into your life, God is at work. He's going to make it for good. And the good he's working in your life is to help you specifically become more like Jesus himself. And you may not see it yet, but one day you'll look back and say, oh, So that's what you were doing, God. Uh, You used that bad circumstance to bring about this good circumstance. And, And when you get to that point, the sting of those old wounds will fade a good bit. And you may even be grateful for what God did in all those times. When you let God write your life story, he makes sense of every chapter. The naming of Manasseh points to the fact that old wounds fade when you see how strategically God has used them. What about Ephraim? There's a lesson here too. And that is that current blessings thrill when you see how only God could give them. Old wounds fade when you see how strategically God has used them. Current blessings thrill when you see how only God could have done those things. Only God could give them. So Joseph names the first son Manasseh, making to forget. He names the second son Ephraim, making fruitful. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And as Joseph flies around Egypt in Air Force Two, dressed in fine linen with gold chains around his neck and Pharaoh's signet ring on his finger, people bowing down to him everywhere he goes, as he oversees the intake of, of a 
bumper crop of grain seven year in a row. He stores up massive quantities in every city of Egypt. Joseph must have been shaking his head all those years saying, how could this be? How could this happen? I'm just a, a Hebrew kid from the hills of Canaan. What am I doing here? A slave and a prisoner and now I'm Pharaoh's right-hand man? There's only one explanation and that is that God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Only God could have done such a thing. I can see now how everything he took me for, uh, through was to prepare me for my life's greatest work. When you let God write your life story, he makes sense of every chapter. I can personally attest to the truth of this statement. It was uh, 15 years ago this month that I left Grace Point Church in Newtown, Pennsylvania after 23 years, almost 23 years of being the senior pastor there. God had done great things in those years. That church was my baby. I grew up with it, they grew up with me, and uh, God did great things. But after 23 years, I was getting a little restless. I knew I probably could have stayed in that church and eventually retired there years later. But I was getting a little restless. I thought that God was up to something and, and there was something else that he had for me to do. And I'd always been involved in seminary education, teaching courses in seminary and involved in seminary leadership in different ways. And then the phone call came one day from Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, and they said, hey, would you think about being our uh, dean for the Center of Transformational Leadership here at Bethel Seminary St. Paul? And I thought, wow, <laughs> this is my dream job. Can spend the rest of my life in ministry preparing the next generation of pastors, teaching them how to lead churches, how to preach. And uh, Diane and I prayed about it, and we agreed that, yeah, this, this is what God seemed to be doing. So we left the church that we loved after 23 years. We packed up, and we went to Minnesota. And I settled in, and things were great for the first uh, six months or so. And then things started to change at the seminary. They went through a reorganization. I think my title changed two or three times in the first eight months I was there. They went through a reorganization and another reorganization and then the next year, the, the president of the university retired, they got a new president and that president had a whole different view of the seminary than the previous president had. And then came the famine, 2008, the Great Recession. Budget cutbacks. Uh, I found myself all of a sudden thrust into the role of vice president and dean of Bethel Seminary Coast to Coast, which meant that I oversaw six teaching sites from, from Massachusetts to San Diego and primary oversight for the, the site right there in St. Paul, the, the home base, 1,200 students nationwide. And I was tasked, after all this reorganization had taken place, I was tasked with cutting the budget 25% in one year which meant I had to lay off a quarter of our workforce, 25 people in one day, May 10th, 2010, the day that will live in infamy in my heart and mind forever. It was painful. And as we're going through all this, I'm thinking, Lord, what are you doing? You know, I, I, I had this church I loved in Pennsylvania, things were going great, and you brought us all the way out here for this? In the meantime, I had faculty and staff coming up to me saying, Dave, we are so glad you're here. 
We need someone like you to lead us through these painful times. God brought you here for just such a time as this. I had so many people telling me that that I wanted to punch the next one who said it. And I knew, I knew that God had us there for a reason. It was, it was a painful reason but, and a necessary reason, but I didn't like it. And, and, and it was, got to the point where uh, early 2011, Diane said, you've got to get out of this job. It's going to kill you. You need to get back to pastoral ministry. And I had to agree with her. I had reached a point at the seminary where I knew that I had basically accomplished, I believe, what I had been sent there to do. I wasn't going to be able to take the seminary in the direction I thought it should go because the new president, the new administration had very different ideas than I had, and I couldn't go against them. And so I said, well, let's, let's pray about the next step. And I came home one day, and she has her computer open. I can still see her sitting there at the, the, uh, on the island in our kitchen, and she had the computer open. She's sitting in a stool, and she said, uh, you need to apply for this job. This is you. And I said, oh, well, let me take a look. I looked over her shoulder, was reading the, the posting on churchstaffing.com, and I said, huh, it's on the shore. I like the shore. And she said, yeah, but uh, you've got to look beyond that. Look at the description of, of, of who they say they need as their next senior pastor. She said, it's you. And I, I read the description, and I said, yeah, wow, that's me. And, and we prayed about it, and I applied. And uh, here, 11 years later, we're finishing our 11th year at Bayside Chapel, and I have to say... I have to say these 11 years have been the most fruitful years of my entire 40 plus years of ministry. Only God could have done that. You know, I, I look back all these years later and I say, oh, that's what you're doing, God. I wish you could have told me at the time. But all that painful time, you know, in exile in Minnesota, wondering what were you doing, God? Well, I know now that I never could have gone from Grace Point Church to Bayside Chapel in 2011 when Bayside would need a new pastor. That mean after 27 or whatever years of ministry at Grace Point, I would just up and leave and come to another church? That would have felt like a betrayal, right? That would, that would have been weird. But what did God do? God lifted me up out of the church that I loved. He took me to, to Minnesota for that four years where he apparently could use me there. And then just at the time when Bayside needed a new pastor, he had convinced Diane and I it was time to get back into pastoral ministry. That's not a coincidence. Only God could have done that. Current blessings thrill when you see how only God could give them. I'm telling you, when you let God write your life story, he'll make sense of every chapter. Even the chapters that you think right now don't make sense, He'll make sense of them. And I'm telling you this, you can trust him. You can trust him to write your life story. Who better to trust than the one who loved you so much that he gave his son, whose life was of infinite worth, to come into this world and offer that life as a ransom for your sin to set you free from the guilt and grip of sin and then to raise him from the dead so that you could have new life with God in Christ. I mean, if he loved you to that extent that he's willing to do all that for you, the Apostle Paul says, don't you think he'll do whatever else you need? 
And don't you know that in all things, even the bad things in your life, he's at work for good? And the specific good he's working out is to help you be molded in the likeness of Jesus. He's using all those terrible circumstances in life to, to sand off rough edges and to chisel away and, and, and to, to form you into the likeness of Christ. When you let God write your life story, he makes sense of every chapter. You know, there was a man named Adoniram Judson. I don't know how many of you know that name. But his life story certainly bears out the truth of what we're talking about. Adoniram Judson felt the call of God to leave America and go be a missionary in Burma in 1812, modern-day Myanmar. So Adoniram Judson and his wife went to Burma, and he served there for 38 years. He died in Burma in 1850, and they were hard years. There must have been many, many times when when Adoniram Judson was saying, God, what are you doing? I don't get this. Why'd you send us here? It, it was, uh, you know, he experienced persecution. He experienced being put in prison, held in shackles. He was tortured. And then his wife died, to whom he was absolutely devoted. And for several months, he was so depressed that every day he'd just go and sit by her grave. Three years after her death, he wrote in his journal, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I can't find him. In other words, I, I'm trying to remain faithful to what you've called me to do, God, but I don't understand any of this. But Judson's faith sustained him, and he continued to give himself to the tasks that he believed God had called him to do, principally translating the Bible into the Burmese language which he completed in 1834. Both Old Testament and New Testament were translated into Burmese. Yes, yes. But when Adoniram Judson died in 1850, it's believed that there were only between 12 and 25 Christians in the entire country. And there wasn't even a visible church to speak of. It, it looked as if his life had been misspent. That it did, just didn't make sense. But at the 150th anniversary of the translation of the Bible into the Burmese language, this would have been 1984, Paul Borthwick, a missions scholar, was addressing a group that was celebrating Judson's work. And before he got up to speak, he picked up a Burmese Bible and he noticed in the front page an inscription that said, translated by Reverend A. Judson. So Borthwick showed that to his interpreter, a man named Matthew. He said, Matthew, do you know anything about this guy? And Matthew got tears in his eyes. He began to weep and he said, we know him. We know how much he loved the Burmese people, how he suffered for the gospel because of us, out of love for us. He died a pauper, but left the Bible for us. When he died, there were few believers, but today there are over 600,000 of us. And every single one of us traces our spiritual heritage to one man the Reverend Adoniram Judson. Now, Judson didn't live long enough to see how it all made sense, but I can only imagine that the Lord has shown him up there in heaven what his work had accomplished. I wonder if Jesus even says, hey, Adoniram, let's, let's go to the gate of heaven. Another one of yours is coming through today. Amen. I'm telling you, when you let God write your life story, you can count on him to make sense of every chapter. The question is, 
Will you turn the pen over to him and let him write it? Will you surrender? And, and quit trying to write the story for yourself. Quit insisting on having your own way. Quit insisting that it turn out the way you want it to turn out. You know, quit insisting that I'm going to get to happily ever after if it kills me. No. Stop all that. Surrender today. Turn it over to him and say, Lord, here I am. I'm yours. My life story is yours. You write it as you see fit because I count on you to make sense of every chapter. Let's pray. Father, we confess that all too often we are determined to write the story. We want to have it our way. We want it to turn out the way we want it to turn out. We think that we can get to happily ever after. I pray, Lord, teach us the futility of trying to make it all turn out right. And teach us the wisdom of trusting you to make it turn out right. Lord, may this be a moment of surrender for many of us, many of us who, who've been concerned and, 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 and wanting to take control and, and, and having very strong ideas about what it will take for it all to make sense. And I pray, Lord, that you would help someone here today to suspend all that and say, all right, I'm done. I'm handing the pen over to you, Lord Jesus. You be my savior. You be my Lord. You be my rescuer and my leader for life. I put myself in your hands and trust you to bring my life to an outcome that only you could. Have your way. Be glorified in me. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.